What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. This is Make It Kind. Make It Kind. M-I-P. With Masamela Matsumal. Mark Thompson. Make It Kind. Get woke. Ladies and gentlemen, my guest today is distinguished professor of homiletics and pastoral theology and a research scholar in religion and humanities at the Samuel DeWitt Proctor School of Theology at Virginia Union University. He also serves as the chair of the theology faculty and pastor of Second Baptist Church at Richmond, Virginia, in Richmond, Virginia. He's a former president of the Academy of Homiletics and recipient of the Henry Luce Fellowship in Theology. He's down in Virginia. This is a timely discussion, I'll explain. His powerful new memoir just published in My Encounter with Racism and the Forbidden Word in an American classic. Reverend Dr. James Henry Harris joins us from the Old Dominion. Dr. Harris, God bless you, brother. How are you today? Uh, thank you, Reverend Mark. I'm doing fine. I appreciate appreciate the opportunity to be on with you today and to uh, chat about some of the the things that are going on, not just about the book that's going on in, in the world. Well, one thing that's going on in Virginia, of all places, that's why this is a timely conversation, the Republican nominee for governor uh, released an ad with a parent who supports him banning certain texts in schools, including a text by the great Toni Morrison, because it allegedly traumatized her child. I mean, so this guy is, is running on that, banning a, 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 the book Beloved, which is really has to be considered part of the African-American, if not American, literary canon. While your book is about, we all got to keep reading Huckleberry Finn. Ain't nobody stopped anybody. And so we we can be traumatized from reading Mark Twain and other novels that portray a, a time when it was traumatic for us, but we're going to ban books by black authors. That's what's going on in Virginia right now. That's an issue in the election in Virginia. Unbelievable. Absolutely. It is unbelievable. It's unbelievable. But, uh, you know, Mr. Youngkin also said that uh, on day one, he would also um, uh, forbid uh, any discussion or teaching of uh, what has come to be known as critical race theory. And he said he would put an end, an end to that discussion. It's almost it's unbelievable because, you know, I mean, critical race theory, to tell you the truth, has been in many ways in a sense, what uh, Virginia and the history books have left out for 150 years in some way. And Mr. Yonkin himself, as well as all other Virginians, 
have been beneficiaries of, uh, of a racist ideology that was embedded in history books and other kinds of books, not just in Virginia, but throughout the South and probably throughout the nation. So this is um, a kind of absurdity that these folk are playing on the emotions of people trying to, uh, I guess, keep little white children from learning Virginia history, which is grounded in racism and grounded in injustice and racism. That is well, the history of Virginia. Right, but, but it's also not real in the sense is that actual, actually the, the course of study critical race theory has always primarily been confined to graduate school and law school anyway. So, but they're using it now as if elementary students were taking curriculum. No, they were taking history courses. What they're right. really saying is we're banning history, but they're wrapping it up in the terminology of, of critical race theory. But, but, but it's also important, for example, NBA celebrating its 75th anniversary. So they released the NBA 75, right? They had the NBA 50 at the 50th anniversary. Top 50 players in the NBA. Well, 25 more years have gone by. So you add to that list with the NBA 75. Mm-hmm. Yet we cannot update the canon, the textbooks in schools based upon literature. Toni Morrison wasn't around when Mark Twain was around. But we're going to keep Mark Twain and get rid of Toni Morrison. That doesn't make any sense. But but tell us about your experience. You were in were taking a, a graduate, speaking of graduate school, you were taking a graduate level course when you were reading The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn and, and, and other works by Mark Twain, correct? Correct. Absolutely. This started, I was actually on sabbatical. I went on uh, that period of time I was on sabbatical and I had gone to talk to the uh, people in the English department at uh, university. Well, I'll just, I'll just call the name of it. It was Virginia Commonwealth, even though in the book it, it appears to be, some people think it's Virginia Commonwealth, others think it's the University of Virginia. But I mean, both of them are about the same. So, but, but I was working on the degree at, the, at Virginia Commonwealth University in, um, in English. I was in pursuit of a Master of Arts degree in English Literature, and um, I thought I would round out that uh, particular program by taking a um, a seminar on the works of Mark Twain. And one reason was because I had uh, never read Mark Twain before, and in as much as he was considered uh, an American classic, I thought that uh, to have a degree in English, I would want to at least have some familiarity with Mark Twain. So I enrolled in that particular seminar at age 53 years old, and I was not aware of the ubiquitous use of the word nigger. We, we, we use the word, the N-word now, but everybody knows what the word uh, stands for. The ubiquitous use of the word, Mark Twain, you know, actually uses the word. He does, he uses the word nigger, not, not uh, a hybrid of it that uh, the rappers use, but, you know, just the traditional word. And so I was pretty much surprised uh, by the fact that in his novel, uh, Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, you see uh, the word uh, embedded in almost every page. He uses the word 220 sometimes in the piece. And when you're in a seminar, usually you have to read the works, you know, before you get to class and that kind of thing. And uh, you're given an assignment and everybody has to kind of stay abreast as much as possible on the readings. And then in class, the professor had a tendency to read certain sections of the book during the class period and out loud. And so it's one thing I learned, you know, that it's one thing to see the word printed on a page. It's another to have the word audibilized and oralized by white students 
who had the permission pretty much to use the word nigga because it was embedded in the text and Twain had used it so ubiquitously. So that was my uh, that was my kind of initial experience as I encountered the book. I went on later to construe it as and and to write about what I what I saw in the book as a kind of um, embedded racism inherent in the language and in the text itself. That was complicated because nobody sort of believed that, and there's still you know the the, the jury is still out on whether Twain was a racist or not. So there are two sides of that same story. Believe it or not, Toni Morrison was pretty much in support of Twain and in support of Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. Which is why we should support her works. But but the thing is, I, I guess in your class, it, it must have been jarring that the instructor and the students were using the word so casually, right? Absolutely. It was, it was casual and it was... Uh... Yeah, that's that's an excellent term for it, casual cavalier. But they, in some sense, were reflecting, you know, on the text, mm-hmm. on, on the the text itself, which which granted permission for the word's usage, because it was. I mean, you couldn't, you can't turn a page in that novel without seeing the word. It's almost impossible. But the professor, they all took very took certain pride, you know, in Twain. In, in in Mark Twain's works, Twain works himself, and Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, you know, had had become uh, an American classic. Even though there were people who were offended by it when it first came out, one librarian up in uh, up in the Northeast had called it the veriest of trash. But I think the book took hold in American society, in American culture, and in um, American education. It took hold. I argue, you know, in the kind of uh, critical uh, elements that are in that are in the book that I wrote the kind of literary criticism I argue that the book became an American classic mainly because of its use of the word nigger and it's unabashed you know use of of, of the word and Twain whether uh, he was interpreted correctly or not was expressing the views of white Americans more MIP after this message so would you argue then that this book, for, because that was what made it so popular, you would argue that's the only reason it was popular and therefore it maybe it should not be as valued or as classical as, as people would argue for it to be? Well, you have to be, uh, you know, a little careful only because okay. Twain is a pretty good, you know, Twain is a pretty good writer, you know, aside from that, he he, he is a pretty good writer and he does. He, he can turn a phrase and so forth. But at the same time, my argument is that essentially because of the inherent negativity that is associated with the word nigger, the book in and of its, the book also not only emboldened, but almost justified white America's use of the terminology, even though the American usage was a reflection of what was going on every single day. And I think Twain picked up on that and tapped into, into the culture, even though Adventures of Huckleberry Finn is, in fact, about more than that as well. I mean, it is about, uh, it's, a, you know, it's a critique of religion. It's a, it's a critique of uh, classism. And uh, it's a critique of, of white people 
as well. But I my my argument is that Twain, because he could he could be in both worlds, I think he took advantage of that and capitalized on it. You mentioned Toni Morrison, and again, folks, the governor or the gubernatorial candidate would ban Toni Morrison's books. And you know, there is this conversation going on on Fox News about the discomfort white folks and white students would feel having to read Toni Morrison and talk about critical race theory and talk about race that would make them feel harmed and uncomfortable. What Toni Morrison said about Huckleberry Finn, and I'm going to uh, paraphrase, is that she sought to, quote, release Huckleberry Finn from the clutch of seminal nostrums about lighting out for the territory and instead revive its contestatory combative critique of antebellum America. The hell it puts the reader through is exactly Toni Morrison's point. The novel produces and reproduces palpable alarm and, and that that would be a, a good thing. She even wrote, it simulates and describes the parasitical nature of white freedom. And, and so, and, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing not only from her, but also an article posted by Matt Sebold entitled, Put the Reader Through Hell in Memory of Toni Morrison, Twain Scholar. And this is published by MarkTwainStudies.com, by the Center for Mark Twain Studies. That's what they quote Toni Morrison saying, Matt Sebold does, about how Huckleberry Finn puts the reader um, uh, through hell. So I, I guess then Toni Morrison, when she's not here to answer for this, um, you were the one in this class who were put through hell. I'm sure Toni Morrison meant for everybody to be put through hell to understand what this is really about and what it meant. But it sounds like what you're saying, Dr. Harris, you were really the only one that was put through hell and everybody else was just kind of matter of fact and, and comfortable with it. Am, am I understanding you correctly? I think so. And I, I don't have a problem with that, with that analysis, because the truth of the matter is I was the only black person in the class. I mean, there were, uh, there were pretty much there were 13 people in the seminar, I think. I was the only the only black male and uh, the only black person in the class and the only one who had a personal experience with the word nigger because I had been called nigger as a child growing up here in central Virginia. I used that example in the book uh, one day. My cousin and I were walking to the, the corner store and uh, it was about a mile walk. And as we went over over the hill, a group of young white boys were out in the yard and, you know, they yelled, came to the edge of the of the yard and yelled at us, niggers go home. Mm. And I was about five or six years old. My cousin was uh, several years older, but that was my first encounter with being called nigger by white children and, mm. you know, and subsequently taunted about it and that kind of thing. Now, like I say, I, I grew up in the, the uh, I mean, outside of Richmond, in the Richmond area, but in Chesterfield County, the southern part of Chesterfield County, where the Ku Klux Klan would meet about a mile or so from our house and yeah. would, would march in the streets and do all kinds, of, uh, all kinds of other things. And mind you now, this is around the same time or a little bit after the death and the murder of Emmett Till in Money, Mississippi. 
when Till was murdered in 1955, I was two or three years old. But, you know, that the spirit of the Till uh, murder, you know, was still hanging over over the American South. Yeah. Yeah. More MIP after this message. Neither the students nor the instructor, the professor inquired as to how the repetition of that word made you feel. They didn't bother inquires to your comfort level at all when you were in this seminar. No, and I don't know. I mean, and I don't really have a problem with that. You know, what I mean, like I say, I signed up for the seminar. I was fifty-three years old. I was not. Right. I mean, I was not. Uh, I mean, already I knew to some extent, regardless as to what it was about. I mean, when I got the master's degree in, in English, I had already I had earned a, a PhD twenty years earlier than that. So I was. I, I mean, I entered the class aware with a certain level of consciousness and a certain level of awareness, but not, in all honesty, not fully aware of what I call the ubiquitous use of the word. That was a, a surprise and a, and a shock to me, particularly as the relationship between Huck and Jim was purportedly so so cordial, okay? Yeah. yeah. But again, typical of whites and typical of certainly typical of uh, of Virginia and representative of the kind of racism that is embedded in the literature, embedded in the language, embedded in the culture, embedded in the practices, embedded in the everyday lives of blacks and whites in America. Yeah, yeah, that is that is critical and important. And you've used the term here in our conversation, which is totally acceptable. The book, though, Fortress Press is the publisher. I noticed they use just the end. How do you feel about that? I mean, Dick Gregory's book, God Rest His Soul, he used to always talk about how proud he was the title of his book was nigger. <laughs> and he always advocated to not use the N-word because other racial epithets don't have that. He, he agreed with the expression of it fully. How, you're using the word, but the book title is N. So how do you feel about, about that? Yeah, well, I, I worked on the book a long time. I tried to get the book agented, first of all. And this is a, a, a reissuing of the book that was first published in 2012 under the title The Forbidden Word. But now, so in the preface of the book, though, I argue that N equals nigger and nigger equals N. So, it, you know, it's a tautology. In in the sense, so I, you know, you're, you're just going around in a circle, and the, but the 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 politics of uh, of of, pub, of publishing in the publishing world is such that they cannot bring themselves to publish a title nigger. They they just can't bring themselves to publish that that word and that title because I think in some sense, N is just much more palatable for the American conscious and society today but you know we all know exactly what n means and what it stands for and i say in the the preface to this book that you might as well say the word i mean because they're the same it's like one and one is two and <laughs> right. and uh three minus one is two so i mean you, you're coming up with the same thing uh regardless as to how you want to approach it. But but just for the record, let me just say, earlier on, I had a, a new a title for this book, a new title. And the title was called, it was a take on Twain and a take on the way that uh, that blacks use the term. So the book was called Nigger Nigger, Nigger Nigger. Uh -huh. but, but that didn't get anywhere either. Nobody would publish it. So 
<laughs> they were so you know you have to in in the publishing world you know you 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 make certain concessions and it's a part of the editorial process and blah 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 so let's let's go down that road a bit and you touched on this the tautology but let's go a little bit deeper and especially in, in light of the, the other book you were trying to get published how do you feel about our people using the term as often and as freely as we do and and i and i, I like what you said i'm going to borrow this sometimes because sometimes you just end up going in a circle but but in general we use it very loosely not only do we use it the younger generation i mean my son's black but i see I've witnessed some of his peers who are either white or Latino, my nigga, you know, and it's almost like I see young women now. Forgive this term, y'all. Hey, bitch, what's up? Now, you and I can't do that. We can't call a female friend. Hey, bitch, what you doing today, bitch? You know, this is my bitch, my nigga. I mean, so there is a culture now where people use they take pejorative terms and kind of flip them in more of a a fraternal way, I guess. But but yeah. what do you what uh, what do you think about those of us as as African Americans in particular using the word nigga be an er or ending in an a when we refer to each other? I know the NAACP once had a funeral for the word word that didn't go anywhere. I mean, uh, hip hop culture uses it. I mean, what what does that what does that say to you? How, what is instructive about that? Yeah, I talk about it in the book. As a matter of fact, I do uh, make references to it. I think that, you know, it's clearly complex. But at the same time, you know, I basically uh, want to suggest that if you don't know the history of the term Mm -hmm. and if, if you don't know the deep harm it has caused to African Americans, to blacks in this country, if you don't know that the history of the term is grounded in the pejorative, it's grounded in negativity, and it's grounded in evil. Now, if you don't know that, then I think that you need to go back and study Black history, African-American history, and know the source of this word. Now, on the issue of uh, flipping, the problem with flipping Flipping is the same problem that I talked about just a second ago when I talk about using N or nigger. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, so flipping is, uh, is, is essentially the same thing. Blacks and the rappers, I mean, they don't use N-I-G-G-R. They use N-I-G-G-A, and right. they, want to, they want to argue that, that that's, they call it, they want to call that flipping or this and that and so forth. But I think that, I mean, that's complex, too. I'm not sure. You, you haven't really flipped anything. I mean, the truth of the matter is, and, um, you know, you are propagating and perpetuating uh, the same kinds of issues that I think uh, that the word is laden with in American history and American culture. But the word will not go away. It, the word will not go away because of the same reason I mentioned Adventures of Huckleberry Finn will not go away. It, Adventures of Huckleberry right. Finn will continue to be read and will continue to be taught. The word nigger will not go away even the way the rappers and others use it is because the record moguls and the publishing moguls, they, they also know that there is a certain appetite for the use of that word, the use of the word in black culture and the use of it in, um, in, in white culture as well. And from the last time I, I, I did any 
look at this or studied this, it looked like rap music was the number the number one uh, genre probably around uh, around the world. And the use of nigger in the rap music is as ubiquitous as the use of nigger is in Twain's Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, if not more so. And I think again that that's highly correlative with economics. It was it was correlated with economics in the novel, and I think it's it, it's correlated with economics in the rap songs and in the music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Virginia. Virginia. Again, this debate around Toni Morrison. You've got someone running for governor. It's looking kind of tight. Virginia. There are Trump supporters who want to take Virginia back. We know about what happened in Charlottesville. Both sides, many sides, and Trump's whole thing. Um, how? What is the state? of Virginia right now. What is going to happen? Will, will, will that mentality be turned back once again? Or, or do these right-wingers and Confederates have the, uh, have the opinion? Is the South rising again in Virginia, Dr. Harris? The South is always, in my view, just a step away from returning to its old self. And I think, unfortunately, in this governor's race, is purportedly very tight. Now, uh, you know, Mr. Biden won Virginia by 10 points. And the spread between these two candidates, you know, is probably less than five. And I don't know. I mean, I think that the key here for blacks in Virginia would be is a matter of getting out the vote, really, literally getting out the vote. And that's much more difficult in a non-presidential year. But um, I think that if uh, ministers and churches and social organizations and groups, fraternities and sororities and boules and Masonic groups and, and you name it, you know, if, if, if we could get out the vote in the same way that we do in a presidential election, I think that, um, that Mr. McAuliffe will, will prevail. But I mean, the complexity of this is that this shouldn't even be, it shouldn't even be the kind of race uh, that it is. But, but again, you know, Mr. Yonkin is, is appealing to the same kinds of things that Mr. Trump appealed to. That's how Trump became the president. He appealed to the basis elements in white America, which always has been brewing just below the surface. And these people have always been, you know, against uh, civil rights and human rights in a very real sense. We're talking about a slavocracy that was government sanctioned for nearly 300 years. You don't erase that just quickly. I mean, in other words, we we were enslaved in America. Blacks have been enslaved longer than we have been purportedly free. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess the concern is that Virginia usually goes back and forth like the midterms, but the past few cycles, Virginia has stayed blue. And I think that gave a lot of us a lot of hope. It's unfortunate that it would be in jeopardy of going back again. Is, is as you said, you know, it has to do with our people's enthusiasm, whether or not we get out to vote. Sometimes a candidate has to do with that. It, is is Terry McAuliffe it, even exciting enough to be very honest about it? I mean, it seems like that was a, just a default position because he had done it before, he'd run before. Is that really what this is about, too? That is just another plain old white dude that doesn't really excite people and, and therefore may not get us over the hump? Yeah, well, you know, I think we have to be excited in new ways. I don't want to say, you know, that, that we have to be danced to and cajoled 
and that somebody has to be somebody has to be extremely charismatic to get black support. I do want to suggest that the important thing in my view is policy issues that uh, that the person the candidate's record shows. I mean, the candidate has, uh, you know, McAuliffe has a, a pretty good record as it relates to blacks and as it relates to uh, various democratic principles. Mr. Yonkin was a, 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 the CEO of a private equity firm. I mean, I, I, used to, I used to be a business student also at some point in my, in my life. So I, I know that, and, and you know as well, that, you know, what, what CEOs and, of private equity firms, I mean, he was the co-CEO of Carlisle. And what these people do is they slash and burn. I mean, that's yeah. what they do. And, uh, you know, what these people don't understand is, in my view, you know, all the things he thinks he's going to support. I mean, he's going to be slashing teachers and slashing other things that he thinks, you know, might be too costly. That's what he's done. That's how he became uh, essentially almost a billionaire. And that's why he is able to almost buy this election. Because before this primary, just a year or so ago, I never heard of him. Mm. And now and now and now his presence is as ubiquitous as the presence of the word nigger is in Mark Twain's Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. Everywhere you look and everywhere you turn, you see something about Glenn Youngkin. And if, if, uh, if, if Virginia is not careful, you know, I mean, the pundits think that the Democrats can still pull this off, but listen at the language, you know, pulling it off. And you, you'd be pulling it off by, you know, by the threat of your, you know, it, it'll be, um, and I do think it is critical, however, for it to be pulled off because I because I think if uh, the Republicans take back Virginia, that this is going to green light Trump to really believe, you know, that he can truly run uh, for the presidency again. And so I'm my thinking is that everybody in Virginia who has an opportunity to get out and vote needs to get out and vote. And I have no problems in telling black people who they should vote for, vote for somebody, you know, who at least has some modicum of your interest in mind. But I do want to also argue that people are just uh, pissed off with the Democratic Party. In some sense, black people are too. I mean, come yeah. on, you have, you know, they have the Senate, they have the House, they have a majority, they have the presidency, all three branches of government. They still can't get nothing passed regarding voting rights, still can't get anything done, you know, regarding this infrastructure bill. I mean, it's absurd, absolutely ridiculous that, that uh, the Democratic Party would allow themselves to be held hostage by two senators. Yeah, yeah. And you're right. I mean, without, and it goes, and it goes back to the question I would ask you, without people feeling motivated, and it's not just that. If it weren't for African-Americans in particular, Democrats wouldn't be in the majority, Democrats wouldn't have the White House. And yet, what are we getting back? When you do elect people to office, what are we getting from that as African-Americans? That's, a, that's, that's the serious. Yeah, that's the whole yeah. point, is Absolutely. And that's a serious question. And I think that's one of the issues. Uh, you know, I mean, if if the Democrats can't get the voting rights bill passed and, you know, if, if the Democrats can't get the uh, those things that are very basic to American democracy, then that's you know, that's really troubling. And the thing that troubles me the most, you know, is that uh, Mitch McConnell and the Republicans, they standing as a block, blocking every and anything that uh that that mr biden wants to put forth and at the same time well you know the story i mean they 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 supported everything that that trump uh advanced 
uh, including, um, you know, all of them uh, standing as a team and as a block, not uh, not seeing any of the crimes and other kinds of acts uh, of sedition that he propagated and advanced and helped support. And, you know, it's like they are rewriting history. They are saying that pretty much that didn't happen. Mm. Mm. And that's in other words, in other words, they have bought not only into the lie that Mr. Biden is president, but it's like, I don't I don't know where you are. I'm looking at uh, I'm looking at your background, which looks to me like New York City or L.A. Yes, I'm in New York. Yes, sir. In New York. OK, so just just as an example, Trump would say that the background behind you is not New York, that it's somewhere in Iowa. <laughs> and that's what he would say to people. Right. And you can see it yourself. You can see. Yeah. But yet he says what you see is not what you see. Yeah. And people believe that. Yeah. So it's really terrible. You mentioned Charlottesville, um, you know, Charlottesville as well, which was, a, a you know, that's that's exactly, uh, you know, what Trump, you know, he said, you know, there were good people on all sides, which was obvious that that was not the case. But but, you know, he has the uh, ability to say that what is is not. And what is not is, and therefore, and the American people tend, you know, tend tend to buy into it. I'm 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 almost speechless, and I'm I'm at a loss when it comes to um, to how our people and how so many African Americans in particular could support something like that. And and you know, and I'm learning at least based on the last reading that I did about this that black males, you know, are much more supportive of Trump than they were for any other Republican presidential candidate. So I don't know. I don't know what's happening to black people. I do know that I have had, you know, people in my own church who were also Trump supporters as well. This is a black church that's almost 200 years old. Well, so. but, but 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 just real quickly though, on 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 that point. So Trump has not come to Virginia to campaign, correct? Correct. No, he hasn't. I don't not to my knowledge. Yeah, I don't think he has. And see, that's what's also very interesting about this because to your point, if Youngkin wins and beats McCullough, while one could say that that enables Trump more, I don't know, because the debate right now is for next year, for the midterms, does he come out? Does he announce his candidacy for president or does he wait? Because that's the big question that people are asking is whether or not that helps or hurts. You know, and I think if Youngkin does win, um, that that jury's still out on that question, uh, because the question then will be, what well, did he win because Trump did not come? out to campaign for him um whereas if he loses it doesn't really matter but i i think that's going to be something that pe people are going to have to consider because i think the democrats and the democratic leadership believes dr harris that if trump comes out and campaigns openly and announces he's running for president and 2022 really becomes 2024 early they're in trouble and they're those who who don't want that on the other hand there is the Trump voter. There are those who will not vote at all on their side. It's been shown if Trump is not on the ballot. In other words, they, they only want to vote if he's on the ballot for, to vote for. But if not, they don't come out to vote. And that benefits the Democrat. So, I mean, I think those are just all things to to consider in this. Yeah. Yeah. I think that people, you know, I mean, I was talking to one of my friends who's a political pundit uh, yesterday who uh, apparently believes that you know it's a matter of uh, of getting out the vote that literally it's it's a matter of getting out the yeah. vote and that that um, that you know uh, that 
black people have to get out and vote. Preachers have to get get the vote out. Uh, social groups have to get the votes out. Fraternities and organizations have to get out the vote. And that's a, you know, I mean, that's a that's a that's a challenge. Uh, you know, when you're in a when you, when you're in a uh, an off year like this in Virginia. But I but I but let me just say this. My thinking is that there is a lot of hope in Virginia that Virginia will not go back. And so I think that there are people who are also committed to trying to make sure that Virginia does not go back and does not does not become a red state uh, again. Now, I don't have to tell you, but like in most places throughout America, uh, um, you know, the rural Virginia is red and probably is going to stay red. But the Democrats, like in almost any election, is that if 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 we can get out the vote in urban areas, if they can get out the vote in cities and in some suburbs, if we can really get the, get the vote out in big big numbers. You know, like uh, like Norfolk and uh, and Richmond and uh, Roanoke and Charlottesville and Fredericksburg and so forth, but mainly in Northern Virginia, which is where you know where there's a concentration, the largest concentration of voters in Virginia right now is probably in that Northern Virginia corridor that that borders DC. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hear. You. So to sum up, folks, and again, we invite you to, to check out the book. A very thoughtful memoir in my encounter with racism and the forbidden word in an American classic bottom line. And there has been debate about Mark Twain and his books and particularly Huckleberry Finn. Should this book, Toni Morrison, as you said, who is, is a factor in this election of Virginia folks, coincidentally, Toni Morrison said the book needs to be read to expose white supremacy. But because of the experience you have, what would you say, Dr. Harris, should we continue to read and promote in classrooms and academia the eventual oh, Huckleberry Finn? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I agree with Toni Morrison on that note in the sense that, uh, but, you know, my my point is that it needs to be, uh, it, it, needs, it needs to have a much more critical uh, analysis, uh, analysis of it. But I certainly agree that, you know, I, be, I mean, as a, you know, I, I I don't support banning. I don't. I really don't support banning any book. Honestly, I'm 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 a supporter of books. I don't think they uh, should be banned. I don't want. Um, I mean, I you know, people have to learn and read. The issue with Adventures of Huckleberry Finn is that oftentimes, you know, you have uh, racist teachers teaching the book. That's the issue. The issue is who. The issue is. Who is qualified to teach Adventures of Huckleberry Finn? Just because you have, you know, an English degree and you are an English teacher does not necessarily qualify you to teach a book that is grounded in American culture that way. So I think it's very, very important. Now, let me just add, just as an, an addendum, off, from my understanding, a lot of the a lot of the um, the courses that teach Adventures of Huckleberry Finn or Mark Twain's works. Uh, AP classes in high schools and middle schools. They're AP classes. They are advanced placement classes. Right. right. And, and, and what that means is, in practice, 
they're taught by pr pretty much white teachers and almost everybody in the class is white because blacks don't get placed in AP classes at the same level that whites do. And so all of these are complexities and these are areas and things that have to be dealt with even in public education as we look at these various curricula and these various activities. My hope is, and with your help and with the help of others, my hope is you know, that, that my book in my encounter with racism and the forbidden word in an American classic would be taught alongside Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. Yeah. You know? That's what we need. Yeah. So I'm 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 counting on you, Mark, to help advance that uh, <laughs> help advance that thesis. Well, to, uh, just to mention the young man whose mother's in the ad, I guess, in the campaign ad, the Youngkin, the Republican nominee in Virginia for Virginia governor, released, apparently is um, an attorney, and he was in he was he's an attorney now, but he was a, a kid in the class. And he was having night terrors from reading Beloved in Toni Morrison's, in, uh, Toni Morrison's book in school. And it has now come out to your point that he was an, an AP student, as a matter of fact. Uh, so, yeah. Um, and, but they were reading Toni Morrison in, a, in an AP class. Yeah, the AP, yeah the, the AP classes, you know, are, are designed for white people. And that's who they put in most of them. They, that's that's who they put in these classes. It would be interesting to know who the teacher was. Yeah, and I don't have the school. I haven't looked that up. But yeah, but so folks, Toni Morrison, who defended uh, us reading Mark Twain, uh, not on non-critically though, right? Is, is the gov Republican governor gubernatorial candidate in Virginia wants to ban it, but yet Huckleberry Finn's okay. And as our guest has said, that also should not be. She agrees with Toni Morrison and not, should not be read non-critically. If anything, we need to be reading Huckleberry Finn with uh, Toni Morrison's essay beside it and this new book in My Encounter with Racism and the Forbidden Word in American Classic. The bottom line is classics in the white canon. They never go away. They're always there. They stand alone. That's it, 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 it. You know, I mean, it, at some point, life goes on. Why are they still classics? You, we, we. When you're, in, when you're in law school, when you're an attorney, you have to go to CLE. Doctors have to go get continuing medical education. But there's no review of these classics and how they're presented. There's no renewal. We keep presenting them the same way. And that, where has that gotten us as a society? That's the question uh, before us. And my guest is raising that question, Dr. James Henry Harris. Folks, check out the book, In My Encounter with Racism and the Forbidden Word, in an American classic. My guest has been much love to you and the faculty and the students and the entire Virginia Union community, especially Dr. Dr. John Kenning, one of the great uh, theological scholars there. Thank you, my brother, for teaching our generation, scholars and theologians and historians and all of that. We need that. We folks, we have, in, in, especially times like this, we want to lift up all of our HBCUs and the students who attend. It ain't easy. HBCUs don't get everything they should have. They don't get everything they should have. Sometimes the students don't get everything they need. That's what's going on at Howard University right now. But this is still a quest we must remain on because there's no education quite like an HBCU education. And this is an HBCU scholar educating us about Huckleberry Finn and how we should approach it. So I thank you, Dr. Harris. 
I thank you, Mark, because the truth of the matter is, you know, a lot of our scholars have abandoned HBCUs, as you know. I mean, that's that's another thing, and that's another discussion. That's another discussion for another day. But let me let me know how I can um, how I can share our uh, discussion today. We can you can do that uh, if you sure, just sure. text text me or whatever. Of course, um, of course, I, I will do that, man. Thanks for getting woke and listening to Make It Plain. Please remember to listen, like, and wherever you get your podcasts, please give the show a five-star rating. And please do spread the word. Let's all continue to pray for each other during this pandemic and this police-demic. If all hearts and minds are clear, it has been made plain.